Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Glad to have an in-person audience and also an online audience today. And uh, you should be glad you're here in person for those in the room because I've been told there's a Chick-fil-A lunch afterwards. So if you're online and you're local, you still might have time to listen to the program and come down in person for the Chick-fil-A. But uh, we really do want to welcome you to Heritage for the first public event of the year. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a good one. And it's right on the American people's minds. It's in the news even today. We know the American people are suffering from high prices of gas, groceries, rent, and so much more. While the pace of the increase is a little lower than the very high inflation we've seen in recent years, uh, just today data released uh, showed higher than expected inflation. The bottom line for our fellow Americans is that prices are now 17% higher than just three years ago. That's costing a typical American household an extra $11,400 a year, according to the Joint Economic Committee. Inflation is something we haven't seen in the United States for nearly two full generations. At one point, it was dismissed as transitory or maybe just related to supply chain difficulties at the height of the pandemic. But new research from our speaker today shows a strong relationship between higher government spending and higher inflation. Unfortunately, the deficit in the United States is projected to surpass $3 trillion next year with no end in sight. Well, to look at this question of the impact of spending on inflation, Dr. Robert Barrow and his co-author, Francesco Bianchi, looked at the spending and inflation data in 37 countries. In a National Bureau of Economic Research working paper, they have uncovered the hidden way that governments use inflation as a tax on the hard work of ordinary citizens. To help address inflation, governments could reduce spending, as Dr. Barrow will explain. Uh, following his comments, he and I will do some uh, question and answer, and then we're going to open up to audience questions, so be ready for that, including online as well. Uh, Dr. Barrow is on the board of editors of Harvard's Quarterly Journal of Economics and has served as president of the Western Economic Association, vice president of the American Economic Association, and as a contributing editor of the Wall Street Journal. He writes extensively on macroeconomics and economic growth, and Dr. Barrow is the Paul M. Warburg Professor of Economics at Harvard University and a Distinguished Fellow in Economic Thought here at the Heritage Foundation. He has a PhD in Economics from Harvard University and a Bachelor in Physics from Caltech. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Robert Barrow. There was a little too much about Harvard and all that. <clears throat> but um, I've been promised that things are going to turn around and get better, so I'm hoping that that will be the case. <laughs> so I think it's still the case that the number one macroeconomic issue that we're concerned about is inflation. And that's what I want to talk about. And I particularly want to look at the connection of inflation in the US and elsewhere to the surge in uh, expenditure that occurred in the US, but also in many other uh, countries. And I think there's a close connection of that to the COVID crisis, 
uh, which led to a lot of uh, increased transfer payments, and that was the main form of the uh, fiscal deficits that uh, uh, occurred. So this particular study uh, applies to pretty much all of the OECD countries, uh, 37 countries. It's actually all of the OECD except Turkey, which I won't talk about unless somebody insists that I talk about it. Um, so it's a study particularly in the period 2020 to 2022, which features the surge both in inflation and in fiscal outlay in most of the countries being uh, uh, considered. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited about this research. It's very much ongoing work, and I'll try to say some things about what's currently going on and what uh, we're planning to do uh, uh, further. Um, the framework that uh, we're using to look at the relation between the fiscal situation and inflation uh, is within the heading of a, a theoretical field called the fiscal theory of the price level, um, which is a field that's been around for about 30 years now. Um, but frankly, most uh, mainstream macroeconomists didn't pay too much attention to this field until relatively uh, recently. Um, and this uh, fiscal theory fits particularly with the COVID emergency and the resulting fiscal deficits and the linkage between that and inflation. And that's what we're trying to examine, uh, partly conceptually and partly in terms of the empirical uh, evidence. So the uh, centerpiece is that in response to the COVID emergency in most countries, there was a large increase in uh, expenditure by uh, particularly central governments. And this was mainly deficit uh, financed. It wasn't to a very large extent accompanied by uh, increases in uh, taxes. And most of the expenditure was in the form of transfer payments to uh, individuals. So the question is, how do you pay for that uh, outlay? And classical public finance would say that the way you pay for a big surge in fiscal deficits is you have to make up for it sometime in the future by having fiscal surpluses. And the other way to say that is that at some point you're going to have to either raise taxes or cut expenditure of some other type, uh, uh, maybe cutting expenditure in the future or raising revenue. That would be the standard method uh, from an intertemporal perspective to pay for a large fiscal deficit. Um, the timing in which you would do this as to when we raise taxes, when we cut spending, uh, is less clear-cut, and it's really a lot of flexibility on exactly uh, when you would pay for it. But the classical public finance would say you can't get away with never paying for it. Uh, you have choices about exactly when, but never is not supposed to be an answer. But there is an alternate possibility, which I think is important in times of emergencies, which most typically would be wartime, but the COVID crisis is analogous to a wartime uh, uh, emergency. So what this alternative possibility is, you have a big public debt outstanding. In the US, it's over 100% of the GDP, for example. Um, you can effectively arrange for a partial default on the debt. You could say, uh, I'm only kidding. I wasn't going to pay back all of this. 
So maybe 10% of the debt is no longer there. That would be like a partial default. So if you have an extreme inflation over a short period, uh, that's equivalent to a partial default on the debt when the debt is denominated in nominal units like US dollars. So if you think about the inflation that occurred, um, something like a 10 to 20% increase in the price level effectively depending on which country you're looking at, that's like this kind of partial default where you, uh, by having a 10 or 20% price level hike, and if you had a debt which initially was equal to the GDP like in the US, well, you took 10 to 20% off of that in real terms. It's like it was gone, like you had this partial default. Now, that approach has been applied in the economics literature, particularly to wartime situations, and most especially to World War II. So if you think about how you've paid for the vast expenditure increase, well, one way that's typically paid for is by having this kind of inflation which amounts to defaulting on part of the debt that was outstanding. Now, of course, default doesn't work very well as a systematic policy. And you're going to have a lot of problems with people holding your debt if they think you're going to default on it. But if you think about a contingent policy contingent on an emergency, which nobody anticipated, World War II or the COVID crisis, then this can actually work. And then you can pay for at least part of the uh, uh, financing through this kind of um, uh, default mechanism, which usually would take the form of uh, inflation working, working through. Now, there are many paths of inflation that you could use, for example, in the US after uh, 2019, 2020, uh, to accomplish this uh, uh, financing. But if you take a simple approach and you think about the surge in inflation as being relatively smooth over the relevant period, then you can get a simple formula conceptually to think about what is the inflation rate going to be in the US or other countries in response to the big fiscal deficit occasioned by the COVID uh, crisis. So let me look at that. I promise I have only one equation. And if you let me put up this equation, I think I can explain what it is. And I think it summarizes all the key pieces of the conceptual framework here. OK, this is it. I promise there are no more. Let me tell you what this is and try to explain where this comes from. Um, so the basic thing is that the government has a kind of a budget constraint. And that works over time. If you think about having a big outlay that's unusual, and it's a fiscal deficit right now, well, that's what's in the big brackets there. That's all the increase in the government outlay occasioned by the COVID crisis. And it's mostly transfer payments. And what it is is a cumulative sum of all the unusual expenditure and in particular from 2020 to 2022, that occurred in the US and elsewhere. So these are expressed in terms of increments to outlay government expenditure relative to the gross domestic product, which is the Y in that, uh, that equation. So if you think about the US and you look at 2020 to 2022, 
I'm stopping in 2022 because I don't have all the data yet for 2023, but pretty soon we could add that in. So if I look from 2020 to 2022, the cumulative increase in the extra expenditure looked at relative to GDP for the U.S. is about 19%, which is an enormous fiscal deficit over three years. If you look at the 37 OECD countries that I mentioned, it's also large on average, but not as big as for the U.S. It's more like 10, 11%, where the U.S. is bigger. So that thing in the brackets is what you have to pay for, this big fiscal surge uh, in the form of transfer payments, mostly. Okay, there's a coefficient outside of that bracket. It's the Greek letter eta. And that's gonna represent what share of this is gonna be paid for not by higher future taxes or cutting future uh, expenditure, but rather through this mechanism of inflation, inflating away a substantial part of the debt. So that's gonna be some fraction. And uh, maybe remarkably, the empirical work that I'm gonna talk about is gonna provide an estimate of what that is kind of on average for these 37 OECD countries. So that's gonna be the extent to which you don't pay for the spending surge through the classical way of cutting future spending or raising taxes, but rather through this other mechanism uh, which is gonna work through inflation. And I'm gonna have estimates of that. Now the stuff that's on the right-hand side of this turned out to be crucial for this empirical analysis because the first thing I looked at when I was doing this I looked at how big was the fiscal surge in these 37 countries, and how does that relate to the inflation that I'm going to try to uh, explain. And the answer to that was it didn't fit very well. It didn't actually work too well. And the stuff that's on the right-hand side of this turned out to be crucial for getting empirical results that actually seem to fit. Um, so there are two things that appear there. One is how big is the public debt in relation to the gross domestic product? Um, that's about 100% for the US, and the average for the 37 countries is a little less than that, more like 60%. Um, now, why does that appear? Well, the idea is you're gonna have inflation, and that's supposed to erode the real value of the debt. But if you think about, suppose you have a lot of debt outstanding, then in order to get a lot of effective revenue, you don't have to have too much inflation. If you have a tremendous amount of public debt in relation to the gross domestic product, then the inflation that you need effectively to generate revenue is actually lower. If you don't have very much debt, you can't get a lot of revenue by inflation. There's nothing out there that you can erode in real terms by having the price level go up. So the Debt-GDP ratio appears in this equation, but it's going to enter negatively. It's going to say, if you have more public debt outstanding, the inflation rate is going to be predicted to be lower in order to think about how much revenue you're getting. So that should be a surprising result, and it was surprising to me, actually, because I hadn't thought it through in advance. Uh, the bigger amount of the spending surge, you're gonna get more inflation, but the bigger the initial debt, you're actually gonna get less inflation. Then the other thing that matters is whether you're talking about long-term debt or short-term debt. 
So the duration of the debt is going to matter. If you have a lot of long-term debt, then you can get a lot of effective revenue with relatively low inflation put in place over a longer period. So that's also going to enter negatively. That's going to be the duration of the debt. So the thing that's on the left-hand side of this one equation is what I'm trying to explain. So the pi, the symbol pi, is going to be the inflation rate on average over this surge period, 2020 to 2022. And that's going to appear relative to the long-run target inflation rate, which is entering there as this thing pi star. Um, so that's the thing which was typically around 2% per year for most of these countries in the period before the COVID crisis. And what's going to matter here is the surge, how much inflation uh, exceeded uh, that. So that's what I'm going to try to be uh, uh, explaining. So I'm applying this. Uh, I have these 37 OECD countries, but 17 of them are on, on the euro. They use a common currency. So there's a question, how do you want to deal with all these countries in Europe that use a single currency and only have one central bank? I think it's probably right that you want to think about this as one economy rather than 17 separate ones. So I'm going to think about uh, applying this analysis to 20 non-euro countries, and then the eurozone treated as one more uh, economy rather than 17 separate ones. And that turns out to be uh, uh, reasonable. Uh, so let me tell you what you get when you do this. OK, this is. Uh, one table. I didn't promise to have no tables with numbers. I just promised to have only one uh, equation. Um, if you can see this, um, uh, this is applied to the consumer price index in these various countries. I've looked at the uh, standard headline consumer price index and also the core index, which subtracts out what's going on with energy and food. So it's the more stable parts of the consumer price index. But the results are very similar for the two. It doesn't really make that much difference. Um, the key results are in column two and four here. And in particular, uh, look at the coefficient that's on uh, the variable that uh, says something about the excess government expenditure. And you see that the uh, coefficients estimated there uh, are between 0.4 and 0.5. So that's the key coefficient in that equation that I tried to highlight uh, before. It says that about 40 to 50% of the revenue that you need to pay for the big fiscal surge is accomplished by having this big surge in inflation, which is amounting to a partial default on the public debt. So it's actually quite important, but it's not 100%. Uh, so it's estimated fairly precisely across all of these countries. And of course, it's positive, and, but in the neighborhood of uh, uh, one half. So let me show you how this fits when you look at the, uh, so this is for 21 economies here, with the euro only appearing once. Um, and what's being shown here is that uh, the variable that relates to the uh, government expenditure on the horizontal axis, so that's the fiscal outlay, but it's uh, related to the initial public debt and the duration of the debt. And those adjustments turn out to be quite central to the results. So that's what's on the horizontal axis. 
The vertical axis shows you the surge in the inflation rate for the relevant economy. Uh, the fit of this is actually quite remarkable, and it uh, ex apparently explains the differences in the inflation rates across these 21 economies quite well. So some economies didn't have big fiscal surges, uh, didn't have that much inflation. Uh, Norway, for example, is the champion uh, in this regard. Uh, some economies have much more inflation than the average. Many of them are in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, if you look at the United States, it's roughly in the middle of this diagram, a little higher than average. So the U.S. is not an all, at all an outlier in this. It's a little bit above average in terms of the fiscal uh, surge and also in terms of the inflation. But it's not dramatically different than the typical OECD country in this period. And that's also true for the Eurozone, which is one of the points in this uh, diagram. Um, so this is for the headline consumer price inflation uh, results. Um, but you get a similar diagram if you look at the core CPI inflation, which is often emphasized in the reports, uh, such as the one that uh, uh, came out yesterday uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics for the US. Um, but the results are actually pretty similar, whether you filter out the uh, energy and food or, or don't uh, do that. Um, so just quickly, I know I'm taking too much time. Uh, I looked at this question, do you want to treat the 17 Eurozone countries as individual entities from an economic perspective or as one economy? And you can test for that. And the results suggest pretty strongly that it's best to treat uh, for the purpose of thinking about inflation as this being one economy in terms of how, in particular, they respond to the fiscal surge. Uh, I should say the inflation rates in the 17 Eurozone countries are not at all the same. It's not like they're all the same. And if you look at the numbers, they look quite different. But in terms of how they respond to the fiscal stimulus, it seems like you can treat them as one economy rather than many. And we could get into uh, that a question uh, more. Um, two things I'm looking at currently uh, which supplement uh, these results. Um, you can add another nine countries, I find, in terms of the data that you need to do this analysis. So these would be not OECD countries, but other major economies. That's about the extent to which you can make the sample larger. Uh, I'm currently thinking about applying this analysis to the US states. So thinking about the US states and their fiscal surges and inflation uh, as separate things. And you want to think about the US states as being analogous to the Eurozone countries or something else. And that's something I'm looking at uh, uh, currently. Um, I don't know where I am on time. Um, OK, let me just make one uh, quick observation. Um, we can have some further discussion about this, but I want to say something. What are the policy implications about all this? Um, first, I think it's uh, very clearly supported from these kinds of results that the inflation in the US and these other major economies did reflect very strongly the fiscal surge, which was generated in particular as a response to the COVID crisis. I think it uh, succeeds in demonstrating clearly that there was this strong linkage 
between the fiscal outlay and the resulting inflation. The question is, was that just a mistake? Was that just crazy? Or is it something different from that? Uh, I try to suggest early on that you can think about the uh, uh, inflation surge as partly a way to pay for the fiscal outlay. And in the context of an emergency like World War II or this uh, COVID emergency, it may not be crazy to do that. Uh, it can be relatively efficient to have this kind of contingent response uh, to a fiscal outlay that's related to some underlying crisis. Again, wartime being the classic example. So it may not just be so simple that this inflation was really stupid. Uh, there may actually be a rationale for having this kind of response. And again, not just in the US, but more broadly across this group of uh, countries. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's probably true, and this is a separate argument, that the fiscal outlay was dramatically exaggerated relative to what it should have been. That is, the response to the COVID crisis in terms of particularly transfer payments was too much in some other sense. And part of that in terms of cost was that you got the inflation. So I think it's true that the inflation related it to the fiscal surge. I think it's very clear evidence for that. Um, but part of it may not just be stupid. And I wanted to leave you with that uh, uh, analysis, even though it's always very uh, comfortable to say, oh, the government is being ridiculous and the Federal Reserve is being ridiculous and all that. But that may not be uh, exactly the right way to look at this. OK. Thank you very much. You want to join me here? Um, Great, great remarks and really interesting findings. And I think that last comment was was really interesting as well because, you know, sometimes people think there is such a thing as a free lunch, but Milton Friedman taught us there isn't, right? So there, there's a cost to these things. You can't just have deficit spending. There'd be no cost. Cost might be worth it, might not be worth it, but there is a cost. So that, that, that makes uh, perfect sense. Uh, so I've got a few questions. Audience, you all should be thinking about your questions as well. And I know we have online questions, and Richard will help us with those. Um, so Dr. Uh, Barrow, first question. Can you explain kind of for a, a lay member of the audience here uh, the difference between kind of fiscal and monetary policies, how they interact, and how more fiscal spending could actually make monetary policy uh, you know, less independent? Right, so fiscal policy, as I think about it here, is about the government's uh, expenditures and revenues in the form of uh, particularly taxes. Uh, and then if there's an imbalance there, you're talking about fiscal deficits or, you, uh, in other circumstances, fiscal surpluses. Mm -hmm. So the fiscal policy is all about the determination uh, of those things. Uh, so monetary policy is more about uh, how interest rates in particular are determined, particularly by the central bank, and how that determination relates to things like inflation. And to what extent can the central bank control inflation? So in thinking about this problem, about the reaction to this emergency uh, situation, implicitly I was thinking about the fiscal and monetary authority as cooperating. The fiscal authority did something in terms of creating this vast fiscal deficit, mm -hmm. maybe for good reason, maybe for not, but they did it. 
And then you can think about the monetary authority as kind of facilitating that by having whatever you needed in terms of monetary policy, including the path of uh, interest rates, to get the inflation, which made it easier to pay for the expenditure. It paid for it by having this surprise default, effectively, on 40 to 50 percent uh, uh, in terms of uh, to what extent did you pay for it, and it was about 40 to 50 mm -hmm. uh, percent. So that's how I was thinking about this. Yeah, makes sense. So often, you know, you, you, the, the popular imagination is printing money leads to inflation. Uh, and, but how does kind of new federal debt also lead to increased inflation? So you can think of the, uh, the debt as also something which is denominated in nominal or U.S. dollar terms in the context of, of the U.S. So that's what gives you something that you can benefit from by deflating its real value through inflation. So that's the way this thing, in terms of how much public debt is out there, how that uh, interacts with inflation. It's creating this incentive, effectively, for the monetary authority to inflate. And implicitly, they're cooperating. Now, I should say, I think the close linkage between the fiscal situation and the monetary and inflation situation is not something that typically applies. It's something that applies here in this emergency context, like in uh, wartime, uh, COVID crisis. And that's when you get this kind of big surge. If you look at normal times, quote unquote normal, but at least not this uh, extreme emergency, you don't see this close connection between the fiscal situation and the monetary inflation situation. So the empirical work that we're doing is really very much focused on this emergency crisis environment. Mm. But then there's enough information to estimate something because we're looking at 37 countries or 21 economies, depending on the context. That's where the information is coming from. But it, I wouldn't get this same kind of result estimation if I looked at all the rest of the years, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that kind of close linkage as you get during the crisis. Interesting. So obviously, many people are hurt with inflation. You think especially people that are struggling to make ends meet. But you know, what about those who are kind of nearing retirement or even in retirement? Um, does inflation kind of function as a, a tax of sorts on them? So I've been thinking about it as though if you have this surprise effective default on part of the debt, mm -hmm. that somehow that can be part of a package of relatively efficient public finance, at least in an emergency uh, situation. Mm -hmm. So to some extent, that can be true. Uh, basically, the price level goes up by 20% almost overnight. Mm -hmm. And then you start from there. The government effectively got a lot of revenue. And maybe it doesn't have a lot of macro real consequence. But then if you want to think about what are the costs of doing that, what are the costs of inflation, well, there are uh, a lot of costs. And of course, economists have spent a lot of time over the last couple of centuries trying to think about what are the costs of inflation. Um, now, one of it is that it's very uneven in terms of its effect. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of how this affects the real income of different people. It very much has effects on the distribution of income and wealth. Um, that might be the biggest cost. I mean, a lot of people say that poor people particularly are adversely affected by uh, inflation. 
I wish I knew more evidence to believe that that was exactly the case. Uh, if you look at the COVID crisis, poorer people were also the beneficiaries of a lot of the transfer payments, mm -hmm. uh, which are intimately connected, I think, to the inflation. So I don't think it's that clear cut that it was particularly the poorest people who are most impacted. There are certainly examples of that. But if you look at it on average in terms of what the systematic effect is, I don't think that's uh, uh, so straightforward. Now, I did make this comment once at a conference where Governor Yunkin happened to be in the audience. And he was outraged at this uh, uh, remark because he strongly believes that uh, inflation is the worst tax and particularly affects poorer people and that that was true with the inflation that we saw recently. Mm. So I don't know, maybe he's right and I'm wrong, but I'm not sure about the evidence for this. Yeah, well, it might depend, right, like, as you said, in that how the government spent the money, who they were giving that money to in the first place could net out, right? But Well, in this, yeah. in this case... Yeah, in this case. That's, in this case, it's central to the results because the transfer payments, which are very large, accumulating to, like, this 19% of GDP uh, uh, extra spending in this period, um, that's central to the story, clearly. And then if you want to talk about the distributive effect of this whole episode... You need to include the uh, transfer payments along with the inflation uh, response. Yeah, and you know we, uh, you, uh, we're pointing out that this is a kind of emergency situation, wartime, COVID, and that. That's the first time we saw these consistent multi-trillion-dollar deficits. But we're kind of—it's almost like it's becoming the new normal in a way. Uh, how would you expect that to to work itself out in terms of if you, if you have, you know, three trillion-dollar deficits year after year after year? It's, it's kind of, in a way, not an emergency anymore because it's the new normal. But what, how would you expect that to maybe work out in the results? You know, if that were the situation, uh, you would be getting the inflation from printing a lot of nominal uh, debt, which would be, as you suggested, like printing a lot of money. But you would not get the benefit that you got during the emergency from the big surprise, which was sort of uh, wiping out uh, part of the public debt in real terms. If you have inflation that becomes anticipated, which was not the case in, with the crisis, from the point of view of before the crisis, the inflation that occurred was mostly unanticipated. And that's why it works as a revenue device. Mm -hmm. If you just start being completely reckless and printing a lot of debt or printing a lot of money all the time, leading to regular inflation, and that becomes anticipated, and then it shows up in uh, interest rates and such, mm -hmm. then you no longer get the revenue benefit. Then you're just getting the cost of inflation. You're not getting the benefit. Uh, the benefit is a very delicate matter. It depends on a contingent policy subject to an emergency like yeah. war or COVID. And it's not something you can repeat every day or every year. It doesn't work. Mm. Yeah, it makes good sense. So what, you know, what are the policy implications of kind of using inflation as a way to pay for the spending and why isn't it a free lunch? Well, I like to think of it as a package of public finance where there are certain things you can do. And one of those is a kind of contingent policy that when there's this kind of emergency, you do something that amounts to wiping out, let's say, 20% of the real public debt. Mm. So you could do that formally just by saying, I'm going to have a default. And whereas it looked like there were 100 units of debt, now it's only 80. Mm. Um, now, for reasons that are not that easy to understand, 
Governments prefer to do this kind of wiping out of real debt, not directly through formal default, but rather through this implicit mechanism of inflation. And there are some ideas about, well, why is it better to do it through inflation rather than formal default? But I don't know if it's completely understood. Yeah. But I'm trying to argue that it's largely equivalent to having that kind of default. Yeah. Then if you look at it that way, then, of course, you can't have default every day. Then if you did that, nobody's going to hold your stuff, and the debt is going to be worthless. Mm. And that's going to be a very poor outcome. So it only works if it's contingent on something which you didn't know was going to happen. Uh, again, wartime, COVID crisis are prominent uh, examples of that. I've got one last question before we're going to turn to the audience. Uh, and you touched on this in your remarks, but the Eurozone obviously shares that common currency. How um, did, Were you able to tell in the data how each of those countries' unique fiscal policies created unique kind of inflation outcomes inside that Eurozone? So I looked for that. I tried to... Uh, I basically expanded the sample from 21 economies to 37, thinking of all the 17 Eurozone countries that were in the sample as being separate entities. And then I allowed the data to decide, well, is the inflation in each country reacting to that individual country's fiscal situation? Mm -hmm. And they did differ substantially across the Eurozone countries. Or was it responding to the uh, Eurozone as an aggregate? along with the other 20 non-Eurozone countries. So the data came up with the answer that you want to treat, for this purpose, the Eurozone countries as being one economic entity, one central bank. Uh, uh, and that's what the data spoke to. It wasn't that I was forcing that uh, into the uh, results. Uh, but the data basically accepted the idea that with regard to how inflation responded to fiscal uh, expansion, it was as though the Eurozone was one economy rather than 17. Mm. Uh, the 17 is the 17 Eurozone countries who are in the OECD, by the way. Mm. Uh, I'll leave people to figure out what are the three Eurozone countries that are not in the OECD. That's a good trivia question, I guess. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and I expect, and sorry, this is a follow-up question because I said the last one was the last one, but this is a follow-up. So would you kind of expect to see that if you look more at the state-level data, like you said, you're interested in doing? Do you think you'll see similar results there? Right. So the parallel result would be you have different inflation rates for each U.S. state. And the data on that have improved a lot in terms of computing what is the, let's say, consumer price index-based inflation rate for each state. Yeah. It used to be the data on that were not very good, but they've improved a lot. Uh, however, because of COVID itself, it, the data uh, collection ended in 2018. And only now are we able to get back to getting the data. So I think soon we'll have the update in terms of the state-level consumer price index evolution, yeah. uh, 2019 to 2022 or 2023. So then we can examine this. So the parallel to the Eurozone, with the U.S. having just one central bank being the Federal Reserve, you might think you'd get the result that each state's inflation rate is responding to the national uh, fiscal situation rather than its own. Uh, but I don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, um, the other part of doing the uh, U.S. state study is you need the census of governments which puts together the information on state-level government expenditure and public debt. Uh, 
And those data at the moment are only available through 2021. So uh, pretty soon those data will be available. So then, then we'll have all the pieces that we need to look at it. And I'll be very interested to see whether it ends up looking like we found for the Eurozone. Excellent. All right, time for your questions. We have a microphone back here. Why don't we work our way uh, from the back there? Gentleman in the glasses. Thanks. So we don't hear much about um, any major inflation following World War II. What were the fiscal and monetary policies that the government undertook back then to kind of keep that under control in relation to what we saw today? So there were vast fiscal deficits. Uh, like if you think about the U.S. and the expenditure during World War II, uh, it's mostly deficit financed, not, by, uh, not financed so much by increasing taxes. But there were, were also uh, uh, broad price controls in place uh, in the US and also in other countries, including Germany, actually. Mm. So I think the right way to look at it is that there was a lot of inflation, but it was suppressed, particularly in the formal statistics. And I think the effective price level did rise a lot during the war. So if you look at the period uh, before World War II for the US, let's say 1940, going up through, say, 1949, the cumulative increase in the price level is actually quite large. Mm. But in terms of the formal data, it didn't really show up until uh, after World War II, particularly 1947, 1948. And Germany also looks like that. Uh, Germany had wide-scale uh, uh, price controls since the 1930s, even before World War II, actually. Mm. Uh, but there's a tremendous increase in the price level after the end of World War II in Germany. It's like a factor of 10. Uh, of course, losing the war is part of that uh, uh, also. But I think uh, I would very much like to look at the wartime experiences, let's say, as a companion to this COVID emergency and look for the parallels that you're suggesting and see if they're there or not. But dealing with the price controls is central to the uh, dealing with a lot of the wartime uh, situations. Thank you for kicking us off with such a great, concise question. Uh, why don't we go here to the front row? Steve Moore, our colleague here at Heritage. Uh, <clears throat> Professor, that was fantastic. Thank you for doing that study. I just had a few observations, and I'd love your you know, feedback on this. Um, first of all, on the issue of um, debt um, and inflation. Um, I think it's important to pinpoint not the debt, but the spending. So if you look at like the 1980s when Reagan was president, we were on pretty big fiscal deficits, not, not World War II sized deficits, but pretty big deficits, and yet the inflation rate came down. And that's because the supply, we vastly expanded the supply side of the economy with tax cuts and deregulation. So one of my focuses has always been focus on the spending. That's the, that's the problem. And that's why, in my opinion, you saw the big bump up in inflation with what, um, what, what Biden did was massively increase spending. And it was all demand-driven, and there was nothing on supply. And in fact, one of the things we had proposed at Heritage, which I think might have you know, caused the inflation rate to be lower was and one of the big mistakes was we should have, rather than pass out all these government programs, we should have like suspended the payroll tax, which would actually have increased, you know, the output of the economy and increased the supply. Um, second point is this issue of duration. It, it, and I'd like you to explain that more because this is really important to the whole 
whether you can get away with kind of inflating your debt. Um, if you have, and if I correct me if I'm wrong, but if you have a a lot of um, short-term debt in your portfolio, that and you're going to try to um, you know repudiate your debt through inflation, that's not going to work because the immediate impact of the of the increasing um, the inflation rate is the interest rates are going to go up on the debt. So you're you're. I, I kind of reject the idea that any, that, that you're able to – the governments are going to be able to inflate their way out of their debt problems, especially the United States, because we have such an outstand, huge outstanding debt with the average duration being about six years on the debt. And so as the uh, – yeah, you can repudiate some of that debt, but you're going to pay way more in interest payments over time. So in other words, you're kind of like a tiger chasing its tail. Um, and so I kind of would love your – reaction to that. I guess the outstanding question is, is it an effective strategy for governments, to, if they want to lower their debt over time, to inflate their way out of it? Can that work? I mean, we've got David Malpas is here who worked at the World Bank. He's the world's expert on this. I, I just I question whether that can work uh, for, for, um, for countries. So I'd just kind of like your reaction to those thoughts. Well, I very much agree with your emphasis on spending. And I would also emphasize here that uh, fiscal deficit spending is, is, is central. It does interact with the public debt as to how much is out there. Uh, so it's not irrelevant what's going on uh, with the public debt. But the uh, central driver uh, in the recent episodes and uh, more generally is about spending. Uh, um, in the recent period in the U.S., uh, you know, Trump and Biden contributed roughly equally, actually, in terms of the uh, extra fiscal spending. I think you can argue that it was more reasonable to have the uh, uh, large fiscal outlay in the form of transfers in uh, 2020, when the crisis was at its peak, rather than 2021, 2022. So, you can argue, I think, that the Trump deficits were sort of more reasoned. Uh, um, but it's roughly equal in terms of the uh, extra spending. Um, I think it's true in general that if you look outside this COVID situation, 2020, 2022 in particular, uh, the association between spending, uh, fiscal deficits, and inflation is actually very weak. And you really can't explain the course of inflation uh, broadly over time in the U.S., uh, particularly uh, from that perspective. Uh, so again, I'm looking at this in, in this uh, emergency situation. That's where this fiscal theory that I mentioned before particularly uh, applies. And it seems to work uh, surprisingly well, but it doesn't explain everything. And it's particular to this uh, situation. Um, in terms of the duration of the debt, uh, so the U.S. number recently is consistent with what you said, is about five and a half uh, years uh, uh, currently. And the debt is about 100% of uh, GDP. So if you think about a duration of the debt, five to six years, uh, and it's spread out uh, over some interval, those are nominal obligations that the government has uh, one year from now, two years from now, all the way out, let's say, out to 10 years with an average of five to six years. Now, those are captive. Those are US dollar uh, obligations. 
So if the government does something to affect the course of the price level between now and this 10 years, it's going to affect the real value of that. And it, that doesn't get offset by the fact that uh, we figured out that the government is doing this, and we're expecting it, and uh, interest rates are going to adjust. All this stuff, which is 100% of GDP for the US, uh, well, almost all of it is US dollar denominated, not indexed, uh, it's captive. And the government can wipe it out, uh, can effectively default on what amounts to 100% of GDP. And it can do that through inflation. Uh, if you had no uh, restraint on it. So I think there's a lot out there that can generate effective revenue. Um, now, if the duration is shorter, US is about five to six years. For some reason, the UK has very long uh, duration public debt, more like 14 years. And then it's spread out over all the countries in the sample. There's a lot of difference across the countries in terms of what the duration is. And by the way, we've estimated the duration, not the literal maturity, which is what's usually reported. Uh, the duration includes also all the coupon payments, as well as the, mature, uh, the principal paid at maturity. Um, so there's a lot of difference across the countries. Now, the idea is if you have a short uh, uh, maturity and you want to get revenue through inflation effectively, if the maturity is short, you have to compress the inflation into the period corresponding to the duration of the debt, let's say five years for the US. Um, and in general, the shorter the maturity, the more you have to do that. And then if you're looking at the inflation rate per year, which is what we're effectively looking at in the data, the inflation rate is going to be higher if the duration is shorter. And if the duration is much longer, you can uh, spread it out. And if you're spreading it out in a fairly smooth manner, then the inflation rate per year is going to look a lot lower. And empirically, this. Sorry to interrupt, because this is really important on that duration issue. Because when you put the equation up, are you saying that for countries that have longer duration, that the inflation impact was lower? The inflation rate measured per year over the period between 2020 and 2022. Is, is predicted to be uh, lower if it's long duration. Hmm. And empirically, that works. Hmm. So what I'm surprised about is how well this works. The two things. One is that the more public debt you start with relative to your GDP, uh, the lower the inflation rate. And also, the longer the duration of the debt, the lower the inflation rate. Hmm. And We've teased that out separately in terms of the empirical evidence. And that actually seems to work. And it wasn't obvious to me, ex ante, that that was going to work. So the obvious thing was the more the fiscal deficits accumulated over, in particular, between 2020 and 2022, the more the inflation. That's sort of obvious. But if you just look at that, it actually doesn't work very well. It's not enough. And these other two pieces turn out empirically to be quite important. This was a surprise to me. Because actually, what happened is I did that first. And the results were pretty bad. And I sent them to few, a few people. And I said, what do you think about this? And mostly, I didn't get very good answers. But uh, from Francesco Bianchi, who's at Johns Hopkins, I got some very thoughtful answers. So I asked him whether he wanted to be a co-author on this. So he's now a, a, a co-author. And then we thought about this more. And what does the fiscal theory really predict? 
And then we got these other effects, which clearly come out of the theory about how much public debt there is. So if you think about the public debt, and you just thought about it casually, suppose you have countries that have a lot of debt and some that have little debt. And there is a big range in terms of these OECD countries. I think your casual prediction would have been that the places with more debt will have more inflation. I, that would have been my first thought. But it's very much the opposite to that in terms of what is true. And that's very important for getting these empirical results. It turns out unexpectedly to be uh, the case. All right, thanks for that question. We'll go over here, and then we'll make our way across the room. So the front row here. Parker Shepard, also at Heritage. Uh, so, Derek, you started off the presentation by noting that the price level mm -hmm. has gone up 17%. And your presentation today has shown how uh, that was a way of financing the spending during the COVID pandemic. My question is, is this reversible? If Congress were to run a budget surplus in the future, would that then reverse the price level back down to its pre-pandemic trend? So this whole apparatus works, again, only in the context of these sort of unexpected crises. Uh, and I don't have that many examples, but wars and natural disasters and the COVID is like that. So for it to work in reverse for surpluses uh, within this framework, you would have to come up with a surplus that corresponded to some unexpected crisis like that. And then contingent on that, you would do what you said. But I don't have a good example of that. So I don't think if we have big surpluses, which I don't know that that will happen either, but I, I don't think that, I wouldn't predict that that would predict massive deflation. I wouldn't expect that, actually. There, I guess there's a few examples of states. Of course, they, a lot of them get surpluses because of a, on, you know, federal money coming in. But that'd be an interesting thing to look at. So Norway is a bit like that, okay? Norway had the lowest inflation in this uh, sample. And of course, they also have this big resource in terms of uh, oil and natural gas. And they did pretty well with that, particularly over this period. And uh, they didn't have fiscal deficits. And the inflation rate surge was negative. That is relative to what their previous history was. So, mm. so maybe that looks a little bit like the example you wanted. Sure. Sorry, can I get a question? Yeah, sure. Is it the, the size that matters? So like this is a, we noticed a very quick expenditure, increase in expenditures. So that when you talked about the inability of the fiscal theory to explain the you know, way outside the pandemic inflation rates, um, that it's only easy, easy to see when it's this very large increase in expenditure. So it, is it just that you don't have the evidence for the possibility of Congress running a persistent deficit for a long period of time, as it did after World War II, um, so that you, you're just not sure what what to say. Because I think that you know the fiscal theory is that the price level adjusts so that the uh, real value of the government's future budget surplus matches the the price level. Uh, so it, it should be that it, it you could either do it through a big budget a surprise budget surplus, as you suggested, or a long-term series of smaller budget surpluses. Is, does that jive, or am I off base? Well, I think that's analogous to thinking about the path of inflation. 
And I was kind of assuming that these responses were uh, smoothed out. Mm -hmm. But the underlying uh, impetus for all this was about this uh, deficit situation, or you want to think about also surplus uh, situations. Um, now, there's one other point I wanted to make here, which ties back to Steve's question about the duration. Uh, so go back again to the US duration, five and a half years. If you take this model really literally, which I'm a little uneasy about, what it says for the US is you should have this surge in inflation, but it should work itself out over a period corresponding to the duration of the debt, five to six years. You go back to this business about inflation being transitory. Well, in this framework, there is a transitory aspect to all this, but it's not really short-term transitory. It's something that corresponds to the duration of the debt. Mm -hmm. And if you turn that into a forecast for the US, what's inflation going to be going forward? Well, it says that the inflation should have worked itself out in the surge sense over the period corresponding to five to six years. Now, of course, we've already had four plus years. So this analysis implies, in terms of forecast, if you apply it to the US, that the inflation rate should come back down to quote unquote normal, which I'm thinking about like 2% inflation if I think about the inflation target as not having really moved permanently. Then the prediction is that within another year, year and a half, the US inflation rate should be down to that 2% range. That's what this predicts in terms of uh, what the fiscal response uh, should be. Um, that's actually looking pretty good at the moment. It doesn't look like we've got back to 2%, but we might be 3, 3 4%. And if you project that out another year or two, it would be plausible that you'd get back to 2%. And that actually fits with this uh, analysis related to the duration of the debt that Steve was particularly interested in. Now, of course, it doesn't just work for the US. I mean. It says that it's going to be different depending on the duration of the debt, which varies across these countries. But I would be very nervous to stake too much on these forecasts. I'd be amazed if that actually completely works out. But uh, that's what the, if you took the model literally, that's what it would predict. All right, we're running close to time here. So I want to get uh, these two, three questions in. Uh, let's get one from online and then get the other two questions in, and then you can kind of pull them together for a response. Thanks so much. Yeah. So from online, the question is, what role did this partial effective default play in stirring the banking crisis and in dropping commercial bank asset to liability ratios uh, You know, in 22 and 23? Okay, banking crisis, good. And this question here? So given the Red Sea politics, uh, you know, what's going on over there, do you think uh, with the con container prices are going to go up? I mean, will that lead to more higher inflation? I mean, there has been insights on container prices actually going up due to that. And also, uh, will Biden Wait, place what was going The Red Sea and the, the Hodis, attacks uh, by the Yemen, Yemenis. Oh. And the shipping uh, yeah. having to go around Rebels, Africa instead of through the canal. There were over 300 ships stopped, as you know. Yep. And many are still stopping. And uh, also, do you think Biden will play subsidy politics given the year coming up? That Biden will what? Subsidy politics. Oh, spend more money? <laughs> 
basically reduce the prices for like agriculture sector, like their subsidies okay. for agriculture. Like gotcha. Other sectors well. try, to, try to get rid of the price increases through subsidies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we had one more here in the middle. And then Mario, quick rapid fire questions here. Yeah, hi. Um, uh, my question is, you seem to be basing, so your denominator seems to be government spending, right? And uh, r rather than the money supply. And it, to me, it seems like one of these situations where we have a collinearity, right? Where X and Y drive Z rather than X driving Z or Y dri driving Z per se. And I think, um, as I understand it, you're saying that essentially the size of the the money supply doesn't really matter. It's only the size of uh, of government spending, and I'm a little bit a, a little bit confused by that. Okay. Maybe I misunderstood a bit. Okay, great. Uh, we'll give uh, President Malpass a question, and then Mario, and then we got to be done. Uh, all right, right here. Related to that uh, question, so does it matter what happens to the currency? We think of inflation often as being the counterpart of the devaluation, the price level goes up by the amount of the devaluation. So do the, do, does that matter in this? And does the, your point about it being transitory over time matter? What, what if the dollar weakens uh, over the next five years? Would that mean, would that change your result? Okay, thank you. And then my last question. Thank you. So real quick, two, two narrow points and then a general question. So <clears throat> Very narrow point on, on your data, as brief as possible, <laughs> narrow point on your data is that <clears throat> you've mentioned public debt. In OECD literature, public debt normally would refer to national and sub-national, so state and local. If you take state and local and federal debt, that's more like 120% of GDP. So not sure how that would skew your, your data. Then the other thing it would be on the last graph, it would be really maybe instructive to see how these different countries' GDPs fared. What, what did Norway's GDP growth do compared to these other countries that are further up the graph? Um, and then the general question is, you know, the 1970s, last time we had an inflationary crisis, very different time. Democrats appeared to have a basic understanding of economics. There was, uh, there was a, a general uh, consensus that the problem needed to be addressed both through fiscal policy and monetary policy. Uh, here, we seem to be over-relying on monetary policy and not at all on fiscal policy, yet interest.